And we'll end off tonight with something pretty fascinating. I mean, when we talk about walking out into nature and sort of hearing, I mean, you can hear some noise, but not really. It's pretty quiet, right? Well, it turns out, truthfully, uh, it's just because we can't hear. We can't hear what's going on around us. And for a long time, the scientific community barely acknowledged that all these sounds existed. But advances in modern technology not only keep us away from nature because we're stuck inside playing with our phones, uh, but they also allow us to take a far deeper dive into those sounds using tools like drones and tiny microphones and artificial intelligence. Uh, have a listen to some of what is actually out there. These are bats. Yeah, we know that sound. You know, apparently bats have names for each other. Bats are super smart. Anyway, we'll get into that in a second. These are the bees. Now, keep in mind, these, these, this is communication. This isn't just buzzing around. This, the bats are communicating. The bees are communicating. And so are the elephants. Now, keep in mind, uh, what we're listening to here is not what we'd be able to pick up. These are sounds we would not be able to hear under normal circumstances. They've been amplified for our purposes. But when you listen to them, and we obviously do that, do this with the help of, of, of artificial intelligence, we, you could start to detect patterns that reveal both the incredible complexity of communication that goes on around us, often outside our capacity to hear it, uh, but also the ability, perhaps for us one day, to communicate with nature, to understand what's being said, and to communicate back. It's all very, very interesting. Uh, someone else who found it very interesting is Karen Backer. She's a professor in the Department of Geography at UBC, a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And she's author of a book called The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. And she joins us now. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, you often point this out, but we we so often think of technology as sort of removing us from nature. And yet you so correctly point out that in many ways, it also helps us better understand uh, the world around us. I mean, digital technology can be deployed as a useful tool or as a, a weapon. And of course, there are many good reasons to be concerned about digital tech today. However, this book does open readers' ears to a new set of possibilities basically using digital technology to enable us to listen to the previously hidden sounds of nature, animals, even plants. That part of it too is remarkable. I mean, what is it, because you've mentioned it, and I, I use the term, what are we looking for? And that kind of speaks to the to our sight bias right off the bat. But better yet, what are we listening for? Yeah, so on the point about sight bias, I mean, Western science and humans also just privileged sight over sound, but we're a very visually oriented species. And so only recently have we realized that a huge range of species, non-humans, are making sound above and below human hearing range. Above the top end of our hearing range, we've got ultrasonic. This is the realm of bats and dolphins, but also moths, other insects, rodents, uh, tarsiers, which are our long-lost primate cousins, they're all making ultrasound. Plants actually emit ultrasound 
who knew? At the other end of our hearing range, infrasound, these are these long, low, slow sound waves that are really powerful and travel long distances. They can move through soil and stone into walls. They can move through buildings. This is the realm of elephants and whales and hippopotami. Um, many, many animals can hear infrasound. And amazingly, the planet itself makes infrasound. If you could hear in these frequencies, you might hear a tornado or a thunderstorm far away. You might hear a calving glacier. You, you might hear the sound of ocean waves colliding over continental shelves, creating a sort of drumming heartbeat for our planet. So animals can hear this sort of continuous symphony of nature's sounds to which we are largely oblivious. Yeah, when we talk about something being dead quiet, it's just because we can't hear the the absolute uh, you know cacophony that's going on around us, right? That's the uh, it's an interesting point. What are we listening? How do we cut through all that noise? I, I imagine through digital technology we can listen, we can hear lots, but what are what do we want to hear? What are we trying to ultimately? What are we trying to hear out there? Great question. And just for background for your listeners, the digital technologies that are being used and that I describe in the book, The Sounds of Life, in, in detail, are pretty new. Um, listening to nature is, of course, a long and, and venerable tradition. But in order to record these sounds, basically, you needed a whole pile of equipment. You know, you could stuff it into an entire minivan and still have to tie stuff on the roof. But only in the past decade have we been able to use, essentially, um, recorders that are smaller than your smartphone. They're cheap, they're automated, they're portable. And scientists have been installing these miniature and waterproof recorders everywhere on the planet, from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintop, from the Arctic to the Amazon. And so they're hearing an incredible amount of sound. Now, the question you asked was, okay, amidst that deluge of sound, right? These are you know, millions of vocalizations that we're now recording, what are we listening for? So one of the things that scientists are listening for are complex communication patterns that convey information, really ecologically complex information. So we've discovered, for example, that many species have individual names. Bats have individual names. Um, we knew dolphins did, but we didn't know that bats did. Um, we've also discovered that many species are really good at precisely describing their environment to one another. And we we didn't realize this before we started doing all this digital recording and analyzing the patterns with artificial intelligence. So a, a really cool example is elephants. It turns out that elephants have a really specific signal for honeybee. They're terrified of honeybees that get into their trunks and ears. And the pretty much the only thing that terrifies the mighty African elephant is, a, is the tiny African honeybee. But elephants also have very specific signals for humans. So they have one signal that is for a dangerous human, a male hunter. They have another signal that's for a non-threatening male human. And they have other signals that are for women and children humans. They can describe us in great detail to one another. And that's only the very tip of the iceberg. Researchers are now compiling dictionaries in elephant, in dolphin, or trying to crack the code of sperm whalish. And we're realizing that animals are engaging in much more complex communication than 
we ever previously realized, and that's a window into their social behaviors. It is. I mean, it opens up an unbelievable window, and you so correctly point out that this is a window that can either be used for good or perhaps for bad. And you talk about the case of bees again, which is an interesting one. Uh, but it is really in our hands to decide how we want to use this information that we learn. Yes. Yeah, so bees are a fascinating case because their language, which is vibrational and positional, is so different than ours. It's really hard for a human ear to decode honeybee language, but our computers can listen on our behalf. So you can use computer vision to study how bees are moving as they make sound. You can use acoustics to record the sounds. You can combine those data sets, and then you start to discern patterns. And we've discovered a, a couple hundred patterns of vocal signals made by honeybees. We know what some of those patterns mean. So there's a stop signal, for example. And of course, there's the famous waggle dance that bees use to communicate really complex map information about how to get to a nectar source. I mean, when I say complex, a honeybee can tell her sisters where to go for nectar. You know, it might be over a mountain, like across a river. These are really complex wayfinding languages. But what we're now able to do is not just decode and understand those languages, we're actually able to encode those vocal patterns into robots and start speaking back to the honeybees. And in the book, I talk about the, a group of researchers in Germany that is using a honeybee robot to speak back to the hive. And they've actually been able to issue specific commands to the honeybee hive using a robot. They, it doesn't always work and it's pretty rudimentary, but still it's one example of where we've essentially broken the barrier of interspecies communication with other species. And that leads to the possibility some scientists believe it's a probability that within a decade or two, we are going to create a zoological version of Google Translate. We'll be able to speak back to other species. Which in and of itself, I mean, it, it is remarkable. Um, and then there's the ethics of this, right? I mean, there is an ethical question here that once you understand or once you know what they're saying to each other, that can either be used um, to have better protect those species or to better control and harm those species in some ways. And I guess that therein lies the ethical issue. Yeah, there are many layers of ethics. Um, these technologies could be used to develop a sense of kinship, deeper relationships and appreciation for other species as non-human persons. But worryingly, these technologies might also be used to further domesticate or exploit other species or even used in precision hunting. So these are these are very, very worrisome questions in an era of biodiversity loss and threats to lots of species. And I, I wanted the book to call attention to that. And I give some examples in the book of where I think we really need to pay close attention. Another related issue is data. Right now, a lot of this acoustic data is harvested without consent. The assumption is no one owns the data and not, other species are not protected by the sorts of privacy rules that uh, you and I would be protected by. Moreover, often this data is collected from indigenous territories and it, this overlooks the existence of indigenous data sovereignty where indigenous communities have asserted ownership of data collected from their territories, be it um, biological or acoustic or other data. And so I, I also open up those issues in the book and 
And my, my goal here is to bring these issues to the attention of the general public, but also the environmental conservation community to spark a debate about how we need to overhaul our ethics for essentially a, a, a new digital era of environmental conservation. Yeah, what what amazes me about it is just, and you point this out correctly, that for many, many, many generations, scientists simply ignored those who said, we're hearing things out there and there's communication going on that's probably far beyond what we understand it to be. Uh, our ability to now use technology both to record it and then to decipher it is in of itself remarkable. Where do we go next, do you think? What's the next frontier here in the next little while, the next few years? Mm -hmm. Great question. There's a scientific frontier and a conservation frontier. The scientific frontier is exploring the intricacies of non-human communication. Bats are a great example. Um, one researcher I talk about in the book, Mirjam Knornstild, a bat researcher in Germany who studies the greater sack-winged bat, <laughs> a very cute and interesting bat. And so her work and uh, that of um, other researchers has revealed that bats vocalize in such complex ways. We now know that they remember favors, hold grudges, their calls identify individuals, kin and family, and parents, baby bats babble at their parents, much like human, human wow. parents. Yeah, they baby bats learn language by babbling, just like um, our babies do. And so now we're we're looking at okay what's the next step probably testing whether bats have symbolic communication that's the scientific frontier but there's also a conservation frontier that can do a lot of good for using these technologies to protect these species yeah i mean for instance we could learn why honeybee populations collapse if we better understood how they speak to yes. each other right yeah yeah exactly and we could also be using these technologies actually they're already being used to locate endangered species to protect them we're doing this off the east coast of canada with north atlantic right whales bioacoustics based protection there has actually massively reduced ship strikes for endangered right whales and that may be the turning point in saving that population. And beyond that, scientists are also using acoustics as a form of music therapy. They call it acoustic enrichment for underwater environments like coral reefs. And that is also showing a lot of success. It won't solve all of the world's biodiversity issues, but it is a tool, a new tool in the conservation toolkit. And it's been around us all this time. Karen Backer, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.